Let's turn our copies of the Word of God this morning to Matthew 12. If you want to follow along in the Pew Bible in front of you, it's on page 971. I think after this one, we're graduating to 972, so uh, we're just moving along. So, uh, but uh, 971 in the Pew Bible, but Matthew chapter 12. And we're looking specifically at verses. It's really hard to divide up the rest of chapter 12. Um, really, to be honest with you, my divisions are somewhat arbitrary, uh, just what I felt like I could get into one sermon um, and have you guys out, you know, by four o'clock in the afternoon. So, but uh, we're going to be looking at verses 22 through 30 this morning. Um, how many of you guys have ever heard of Glendwer Michael? How many of you guys have ever heard of him? That's about what I expected. I, I don't know that anyone has ever really heard of him, but the truth is, if it were not for him, there's a good chance that we would all be speaking German today or Japanese, one or the other. The reason why is because he was a homeless labor Welsh man who lived in Britain who died in 1943 because he accidentally ate rat poison. Now, that doesn't sound like a very heroic act, does it? No, not at all. But uh, you see, at that time, the, the Britain was hatching this, this insane plan that they were looking for someone, and they found Mr. Michael, and they made up an entire history for him, an entire personal story, and they called him Major Martin. And they loaded his pockets with unpaid bills and love letters from a wife that didn't exist. And, and they also put in his pocket fake plans to invade Greece and Sardinia. And they dropped him off on the coast. They made him look like he was part of a plane crash. And they dropped him off off the coast of Spain where they strongly suspected that there were Nazi sympathizers there. And sure enough, they were correct. His body ended up in the hand of the Nazis. The plans went all the way to Hitler and Hitler fell for it. And he moved entire divisions away from Sicily to Greece and Sardinia in order to prepare for this coming invasion that he got from the plans. And when the Allies struck, they actually struck in Sicily. And they met very little resistance and they were able to go into that portion of Europe with very little trouble. And uh, Hitler had to call off entire assaults from other parts of Europe in order to come and deal with this problem. And he never really got a handle on the war again after that. That was, that was really kind of a secretive turning point that we have just now kind of found out about that's gotten popular again. I just heard the story this week. It's called Operation Mincemeat. Now, I don't know where they got that name, but uh, just a fascinating story of, the, of, this, of this intelligence thing that they did and, and really led ultimately a chain reaction that, that won the war. You know, it's amazing how a little piece of misinformation can change everything in warfare, can change everything. Just one little piece of misinformation. And the truth is, is that spiritual warfare works in a lot of the same way. Because you remember when, when uh, Adam and Eve were in the garden and Satan came and tempted them, and what did he do? He gave them one little piece of misinformation. He said, did God really say, you won't surely die? 
and they made him question, they made them question the, the goodness and the, and, the, and the care of God. And of course, we all know that the rest is history. One little piece of misinformation can do a lot of damage in the Christian life. It can do a lot of damage in a church. It can do a lot of damage in a nation or in a family. And this is still how our enemy works today. He is the father of lies and the creator of them. He is the one who wants to plant little seeds of doubt in your mind and little seeds of misinformation in your mind so that he will bring your faith to shipwreck. And so this morning, I hope to equip you to withstand the misinformation that our enemy plants, to, to strengthen your faith, to help you withstand those little doubts that he wants to plant in your mind. And so last week, just to give you a little context, if you, if you remember, we left Jesus in verse 15. He has is, he is moved away from the synagogue. He is involved in a healing ministry. And verse 15 says that, that the crowds are following him, and, and it says that he is healing them all. And Matthew takes a short little aside to, to explain that prophetically from the book of Isaiah, and we saw that last week. And so now, in verse 22 in our text this morning, we are, we are kind of catching up with that again. And there is a man who is brought to uh, Jesus. He is a demon-possessed man, he, and his symptoms are, are pretty unique. He is, he is unable to speak, and he is blind. And so Jesus heals him without any kind of fanfare, without a whole lot of detail, anything like that. Jesus heals him so that he is able to speak and he is able to see. And by the way, if you mark in your Bibles, you might wanna mark those two little words because those themes of speaking and seeing are gonna follow the rest of the chapter. Like, for example, we're talking here today about the theme of speaking and, and the unpardonable sin is gonna come up and that we will be judged for our words and every careless word and, and all that. And then in verse 38, the Pharisees come to Jesus and say, we want to see a sign from you. And the only sign they will be given is the resurrection. So you might wanna mark those two little words, speaking and seeing, because they are gonna basically be the theme for the rest of the chapter. But the people were obviously amazed by this. And so we see the responses in, in verses 20, uh, 23 and 24. The people are watching this and they say, can this possibly be the son of David? They know that the prophecies that speak of him and they know that, that when the Messiah comes, he's going to be reversing the effects of the curse, that when the kingdom of God comes, the, the, all of the effects of sin are gonna be done away with and that the kingdoms of Satan are gonna, be, are gonna be defeated and they're looking at Jesus doing these things and they're saying that, can this be the one? Is this the one that we're looking for? Well, obviously the Pharisees can't have that. And so I imagine in this crowd, that they are just kind of working their way through the crowd and they're just kind of saying, you know, this fellow over here, it's kind of dismissive, isn't it? This dude, that guy, he's just casting out demons by Beelzebul. He's just tricking you. He's just, he's just performing magic. Very interesting word, Beelzebul is a is a word, of, it's the name of an Ekron, it's a Canaanite god in the Old Testament, but by the time of Jesus, uh, it pretty much became another name for Satan. 
And I don't want to spend a whole lot of time talking about Satan this morning. That's not who I came to talk about. But I want you to notice that this false attempt, this false accusation, what is it that they're doing here? Well, you remember in verse 14, after the synagogue, what did they, go, what did they start doing? They're starting to conspire and how they might destroy Jesus and not just kill him, but get rid of his entire ministry, get rid of his entire influence in the nation. And so what they are essentially doing here, and, and, and just for lack of time, uh, all they're doing is essentially accusing him of practicing magic or practicing sorcery, which in Israel at the time is a capital offense. And so they're, try, they're essentially trying to stir up the crowd in order to get, get them to stone him so that they can kill him on the spot and be done. I think this is their first attempt at trying to take his life. Obviously, it doesn't go very well. What I think is really interesting here, though, is that that accusation that Jesus was a sorcerer, that he practiced sorcery, that actually followed him all the way up into the Middle Ages. Did you know that? In fact, there are Jewish writers at the time that accused Jesus of, of practicing sorcery and practicing magic by the devil. In fact, one Jewish rabbi made up this whole story about uh, how Jesus went down to Egypt and he learned magic there and then he came back in order to mislead the nation. And uh, what's interesting is that there was a Roman philosopher who hated Christians and he picked up on that story. And so he wrote that story, and there was a church father named Origen who wrote against Celsus, was that guy's name, and the entire book is essentially refuting that. Very interesting, very interesting book. But here's what I want you to notice. No one is denying that Jesus is doing mighty supernatural works. No one's denying that. All the way through the Middle Ages, no one is denying that Jesus is doing supernatural acts of power, not his followers, not his enemies, not uh, the people who were there, not the people afterwards. No one could deny the mighty works that they are watching Jesus perform. No one can. And so that leaves us with a choice. If we can't deny the works, we have to explain them, right? So how do we explain them? We only have two choices. They are either from God or they are from something else, which anything else by definition would be from the devil. And so that's the choice that we are all having this morning is who is Jesus? Where is he coming from? Whose kingdom has he brought? Has he brought the kingdom of God? Or has he brought the kingdom of Satan? And so the Pharisees' only choice was to plant misinformation because they couldn't deny what he was doing. And so this morning, I want you to see that just like Jesus does, and we're gonna look at how he answers, just like, what, just like Jesus does, when the enemy plants misinformation in our mind, we must always be ready to give an answer for the hope that is within us. 1 Peter 3, 15, always be ready to give an answer, whether it comes externally from someone else or whether it comes internally from, from seeds, that, thoughts of doubt that come in our minds, wherever it comes from, always be ready to give an answer. 
And so how can we do this? Well, let's look at how Jesus answers this accusation. Beginning in verses 25 through 27, when the enemy plants misinformation, the first thing we need to do is refute their falsehoods. Refute their falsehoods. Look at verses 25 through 27. Let me get right back to the right chapter. Uh, 25 through 27. Stephen, you might need to read this again. Uh, Here it goes. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste and no city or house is divided. No city or house divided against itself will stand. Jesus, uh, he does a couple things here. I want you to notice, it says, knowing what they're saying, Jesus is, is he's, he's practicing his kind of omniscience here. He knows what they're doing. And not only that, he knows the heart. He knows the hostility that it's coming from. And so he's going to refute their falsehoods. He does it in a couple ways. Number one, he shows their absurd logic. He shows that their logic is just completely absurd. Because, if, because he says here, no kingdom and no city and no house that is divided against itself, they will all be laid waste. Simply, the matter is, is that if your household or if your kingdom or if your nation or if your city, if it is divided against itself, oh, by the way, if your church is divided against itself, if there is civil war taking place, if there is division that is happening, no one can withstand that and everything will be laid waste. This is more than just a proverb for the Pharisees because they remember Israel's civil war. They remember how the kingdom was divided into two and they never really fully recovered from that. Even to this day that we're looking at here in the days of Christ, even now in the modern day, they've never really fully recovered from that civil war that took place after the reign of Solomon. And so this is more than just a proverb for them. They understand this. And so Jesus brings it down specifically. He says in verse 28, 26, sorry. He says, if Satan is casting out Satan, then he's he's attacking himself. How in the world would his kingdom stand? Most nations, most most churches, unfortunately, especially in America, they, they do not, they do not, fall apart from forces from without, but they often fall apart from forces from within. It's the internal division. It's the internal rot, the the gangrene that begins to set in and that, that leaven that leavens the lump and it begins to spread throughout the rest of the dough. That's how most things tend to fall apart. It's from internal issues, internal problems. And so if Satan is just casting out Satan, then why in the world would he do that? His kingdom would never survive that. It's absurd. But there's also prideful arrogance here because Jesus goes on. He says, and if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, then whom do your sons cast them out by? In other words, why is it okay for you guys to do it, but not okay for me? Why is it okay that, why is it that when your sons do it, that's of God, but when I'm doing it, that is of Satan? It's prideful arrogance. By the way, um, in all throughout the Roman Empire, exorcism was a recognized practice. And the Jews, uh, ironically, this is actually, I think there's probably reason for this, the Jews were especially known for being very good at it. 
They, they were especially known for, for being able to do this effectively. Uh, all throughout the Roman Empire, people sought out the Jewish people to perform their exorcisms. I think it's because they worshiped a true God, but that's beyond the point. It was well known in the empire and the Jews were especially knowledgeable. And Jesus says, if your sons can do it and when they do it, it's by God. But when I do it, why is it by Satan? If your sons are especially good at it and I'm especially good at it, then how can you say that I'm casting it out by Satan? You you see that logic there? It just makes sense. Uh, it's, It's insurmountable. They're seeing this incredible works that is being done. How can they they deny this? Can you imagine that if someone was coming into here today and we had this whole infestation of demonic activity going on and someone came in and just one by one by one, like like a ninja movie, just fighting off every single little opponent that comes just easily with no problem. He's doing this demon after demon after demon after demon until it's all gone. We look at that and we say, How can we deny the power that's involved with that? Can you imagine the kind of arrogance it took for the Pharisees to see all of this that's going on and try to deny it? Why did they do that? It's because of their sin. And it's because of the sin nature. Beloved, sin has infected every single part of our being prior to to coming to Christ. It affects our emotions. It has affected our bodies. It has affected our intentions. And yes, it even affects how we think and how we interpret the things we see. In fact, look at a couple of passages with me. Ephesians chapter four, verses 17 and 18. It says, now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the nations do in the few, watch this, in the futility of their minds. What does that mean? He goes on. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. That is what sin does to your thinking. It's called the noetic effects of the fall, the noetic effects of sin. It affects how we think. It affects how we process things. And you look back in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, you find the same truth. He says that even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. Why? Because in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. If you open your Bibles there, I would would encourage you to put your ribbon there because we're gonna come back to that passage. We do this, don't we? We do this. We, everything that comes in our life, whether it is suffering, whether it is pain, whether it is heartache, whether it is unexpected blessing, whether it is joy or happiness, whether it is um, anything that comes, good or bad, we always ask the question, what do these things mean? You see, you and I, by nature, we are meaning makers. And everything that happens in our life, we interpret through the lens of a meaning. We want to know what it means, don't we? You may not even, you may not even do this consciously. You may even do it subconsciously. 
But the truth is, is that everything that happens, we interpret and we wonder what it means. It, it's, the, it's, the, it's the teenager that, that locks himself up in their room and the parents wonder, what does this mean? What are they doing? Or maybe it's the parent who wonders why their grown children don't come to see them as much as they want and they, and they wonder, what does this mean? It's the cancer diagnosis that you get the diagnosis and you wonder, why is this happening? What does this mean? It's the, it's the person who suddenly, you know, I don't know, wins the lottery or comes into an inheritance or something like that and they get like a million bucks and, and you wonder, why them? <laughs> At least I do. Maybe I'm the only sinner in the room, but, <laughs> but you wonder, why not me? What does that mean? We are meaning makers, we can't help it. And the answers we give to every little thing will determine what direction we move in. Well, so-and-so said so-and-something. Well, what does that mean? You automatically assign a meaning to it. Well, guess what? That meaning is gonna determine how you relate to so-and-so next time. The meaning we assign will determine our direction. And so, beloved, when we are confronted with the, with the trials of life, the enemy's design is to plant little seeds of doubt in your mind. Is God really good? Is he really in control? My own greatness, my own righteousness did this for me. All of those little falsehoods, immediately when they come, we must answer them. And we must refute them. Otherwise, that grows like little gangrene starts off in your toe, it grows up through your leg, and eventually it moves into the circulation system, and it takes your life. It's a root of bitterness. It's yeast, uncontrolled yeast in a lump of dough. It will grow and take over. Don't let these kinds of doubts, don't let these kind of seeds grow in your heart. Don't let them take over. We must refute their falsehoods, but not only refute, it's not enough just to take out the bad. You've got to also answer it with good. What is the truth? We must respond to them faithfully. We must respond to them faithfully. Look what he goes on to say in verse 28. It says, but if it is by the spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he must plunder his house. Again, no one denies that the supernatural acts of power, powerful things are being done. No one denies that. Not enemies, not friends. And we saw what the first option was. We saw what the first choice was. But what's the second choice? What's the second option in verse 28? Jesus says that if I am casting out demons by the Spirit of God, and, and keep that phrase in mind because that's gonna come into play next week when we talk about the unpardonable sin. But he says that if I am casting out demons by the Spirit of God, what does that mean? It means that the kingdom of God has come upon you. That the fulfillment, remember last week, Daniel 2, 44, that the kingdom of God is gonna come crashing in during the Roman Empire. Jesus is saying that that text, that kingdom, that rock that was hewn by no human hands that came soaring out of the mountain of God, here I am. 
And if I am casting out demons by the Spirit of God, that means the kingdom of God is here. It is among you. It's standing in the person and work of Jesus Christ. It is the fulfillment of John's preaching. Remember John at the very first of the gospel, like two years ago when we covered it. He said in Matthew chapter three, he says, the kingdom of heaven is near. You remember that was exactly the message that Jesus gave in Matthew 4, 17. Repent and believe for the kingdom of heaven is here. It's upon you. It's coming. Here it is. And Jesus is essentially saying that these works I am performing is validating for you the truth of my message. These verses are so important to understand the purpose of miracles. These are absolutely vital. Why did Jesus perform miracles? Why did the apostles perform miracles? Why did Moses perform miracles? Uh, And these people who are claiming to do all these miracles today, uh, what's the incongruity there? Why, why, do we, why do we deny those things and yet we believe the miracles of Christ and the apostles and all that? Because of this passage right here, because we see what the purpose of miracles are. They were to validate the coming of the kingdom. They were to show that the message of Christ is real. That no one was denying that the miracles are being done. Well, Jesus himself, the one doing the miracles, is now telling you Why? Because the kingdom of God has come upon you. I am the son of David. The miracles validate the message. But not just validating. He goes on and gives this little parable in verse 29. The the strong man. What's he talking about here? Well, it's pretty simple. If you want to break into a house, you got to take out the guard. If you want to break into the palace, you got to take out the guards, right? If you're going to plunder someone's house, then you've got to bind the strong man of the house so that way you are free to move about at will. Otherwise, he's going to beat you. And you see, it's not just showing that Jesus's message is real, but it's also showing that the kingdom of God is defeating the kingdom of Satan. Jesus is binding the strong man. You remember Revelation chapter 20? When the dragon, when Satan is thrown in in chains and he is bound for a thousand years, Jesus is saying, that's what I'm doing. I am binding the strong man. He is being bound. The kingdom of Satan is falling. The world is passing away. The kingdom is growing and coming alive. The kingdom of God is defeating the kingdom of Satan. Shouldn't come as a surprise, the power of God against the power of Satan. There's no contest. You remember David and Goliath, you know, tried to give him all that sword, expected it's a big battle. What, what did David do? <laughs> Goliath's down. That's all there was. Pretty anticlimactic, if you ask me. But it's not. Why? Because the power of God against the power of Satan, there is no contest. There's nothing. Satan has nothing on God. And Jesus is binding the strong man of this earth and putting him in his place. Don't be sad for him. He's a jerk. He deserves it. Satan is being defeated. 
And what we are seeing here is the beginnings of the reversal of the curse. Sickness, disease, Jesus is healing them, not to give them a better life, but to show that when you come to Christ, all of the effects of the curse are reversed. And that ultimately we are becoming more and more like Christ every day. Paul says, even though our outer man is being, is, is wasting away, our inner man is being renewed day by day by day by day until that glorious day that we are glorified in heaven and we are who we were created to be in Christ, glorified with him, living without the effects of the curse. Our faithful ones, our beloved friends who have passed. We talked about a lot of loss this morning. A lot of loss. Beloved, if they know Christ, that's where they are. That's where they are. They're worshiping Christ right now without the hindrance of a sin nature, without the the weakness of the flesh, Without the, without the soreness of our pews. Just throwing it out there. It gets better. Without the, all of those weaknesses and all of those hindrances and little distractions we have in life. Beloved, they are more alive than we are today. More alive than we are. And that's why we look at We look at these doubts. We look at those who try to plant doubts in our life through internet or the news or saw some CNN special on the life of Jesus some two seasons where they basically tried to poke holes in every aspect of a story. And we we look at those things and we, yes, we refute their falsehood, but how do we answer them? How do we answer them faithfully? Go back to, Go back to 2 Corinthians chapter four. What does he say? And their, in their case, the God of this world have blinded their minds to where they cannot see, to where they do not see the glory of God. Oh my goodness, what do we do to try to help them? Simple, I'm glad you asked. Because Paul immediately says, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Stay right there, don't move quite yet because that's our responsibility. That's what we do, that's our side of it. But what's God's side of it? How does he come alongside of us? Go ahead and move to the next verse. It says, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness. What does that sound like? Sounds like Genesis 1-1, right? God who said, let light shine out of darkness has what? Has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We preach Christ, God changes hearts. We explain the text and God illuminates your spirit to understand the text. Not, it's, not, it's not either or, it's both and. It's a two-sided. That's why it doesn't matter who preaches. If I preach or if Stephen preaches, it doesn't matter how short, doesn't matter how long, doesn't matter how, how 
uh, gifted, doesn't matter how ungifted. If we, are, if we are explaining the text, then God uses that to illumine your hearts and grow you in Christ. And he does the same thing for the lost. It is not the power of our arguments. Don't get me wrong. This is basically an apologetic sermon. Uh, I love apologetics. And, and I think it's great for strengthening the faith of believers. I think it's great for refuting the falsehood of unbelievers. But listen, it is not the power of our arguments that changes a soul. It is the illumination of the Spirit of God bringing them, uh, the, the, uh, the, the drawing of the Spirit of God of those who are called. It's a supernatural thing. There is no eloquence There is no argument. There is nothing that can substitute that. I want you to understand that every Sunday when we come here, we are in spiritual warfare within ourselves. I just told you, I'm experiencing spiritual warfare this morning. I'm I'm struggling with something in my life. I told you that. It was hard for me to get started this morning. But that's the war we're all facing And it doesn't matter how weak you are because it matters how great the strength of our God is. That's what matters. Romans chapter one, verse 16, you all know this text well, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? For it, not me, it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, historically to the Jew first and then to the Greek. He's saying about the power of the cross. Man, I, I love that song, even though I played so many wrong chords this morning. I love that song. The power of the cross. This is the power of the cross. It is the gospel that breaks down all of those defensive walls. I often hear people say that Jesus knocks on the door of your heart. No, beloved, you are trapped. You are being held hostage in a home. And Jesus bursts through the door and he looks at you and says, you're mine now. You are no longer a captive. You now belong to me. We are his. That's the power. And this is how we view our whole life. We refute the lies of the enemy. We remind ourselves of biblical truth. God is sovereign. He is good. And through Christ, he is reconciling all things to his glory, which is ultimately our greatest good. I pray that all the time. Lord, may this result in your greatest glory, which is always our greatest good. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? It's how we live our whole lives. It's how we view our whole life. But regardless of their response, regardless of the circumstances, regardless of how well we do this, there's one thing we absolutely must do, and that is resolve to follow Christ, no matter what. Resolve to follow Christ. Look at verse 30. He says, forever, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. We must resolve to follow Christ. There is no middle ground. There are those who are gathering the kingdom with Christ through evangelism, through discipleship, through missions, uh, common grace ministries, just mercy ministries, et cetera, et cetera. There are those who are gathering the kingdom And those who are against Christ, who are scattering. 
You ever notice that one good way to tell the difference between truth and lies, what is demonic and worldly wisdom versus what is godly wisdom? You ever notice worldly wisdom is always gonna divide? You ever notice that? Worldly wisdom is always going to scatter. I mean, look at what all we've dealt with just in the past few years. I mean, critical race theory, um, so many more, I, I, I'm drawing a blank, but just look at how many, and, and, the, and the end result of all of that stuff is to divide. Demons are obsessed with division. In fact, every demonic activity is headed toward death. You ever notice that? What did the pigs do the second that Jesus threw the demons and the pigs? What did they do? They committed pigicide or suicide. suicide. Yeah. That's good. I like that. <laughs> I did not think of that. That was awesome. <laughs> they laugh at your jokes. So, <laughs> where was I? Okay, so... <laughs> What did they do? They, they ran off the cliff. The demon who was so attacking that young man, what was he doing? Throwing him in fire, throwing him in water. Demons are obsessed with death. Have you noticed how obsessed our culture is with death? At the beginning of life? At the end of life? Have you noticed how obsessed we are? We use it as a convenience Use it as an escape. Death. That's the demonic doctrines. One way to tell truth from lies. Do they scatter or do they unite? Do they result in death or do they result in life? Beloved, demonic doctrines, worldly wisdom, all those who oppose the church will only get stronger and stronger and stronger. And when those times come, we must resolve to be faithful to Christ and his truth. We can't fall to the world's. Even if we don't understand it, and trust me, beloved, there will be many times that you won't. It will seem so meaningless. It'll seem so, why did I get this cancer diagnosis? You may never know the answer this side of heaven. Why do I have this Parkinson's? Why is my child doing this to me? Why is my parents doing this to me? You may never know those answers this side of heaven, but one thing you can be sure is that God is in control and that he is good and that everything he brings into our lives is brought in order to, to bring us into greater conformity to the image of Christ. Christ suffered and you will never be more like Christ than when you suffer in a Christ-like way. When those times come, that is not the time to resolve to be like Christ. The time to make that resolution is now. In fact, the time, the best time, uh, what, there's this parable, I can't remember where it came from, but when is the best time to plant a tree? 30 years ago. When's the second best time to plant a tree? Today. The best time to resolve to follow Christ 
was, was years ago. Not all of us have 30 years under our belt, but years ago. The second best time to make that resolution is today. Today. We don't know when those attacks are gonna come. We don't know when those seeds of doubt are going to attack our soul. So we need to be ready now. That's why 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, a verse that every apologetic loves, says here to, to be ready to give a defense, to give an answer for the hope that is within us. But have you ever noticed the first part of that verse? What does it say? Honor Christ Jesus as holy in your heart. That's the first step is that we must resolve to honor Christ in our hearts as holy. And if that is not in place, then we will be deceived, perhaps even when thinking we're serving God. We must resolve to follow Christ. Is that your resolve? Is that your resolve this morning? Have you made that resolve? Are you resolved no matter what to follow Christ? You know, Jonathan Edwards, the quintessential American theologian, probably the best theologian America's ever produced, the, the catalyst of the first great awakening. He had, a, he had a, a list of resolutions. I think there's like a hundred of them or something like that. And I'll tell you, a great, a great activity is, is every year on New Year's Day is to read through those resolutions to see how can I resolve to be more like Christ this year? Will you resolve to praise him no matter the cost, no matter the circumstances, no matter the hurt, no matter the offense, no matter the pain, no matter the joy, no matter the blessing, no matter the happiness, no matter whatever it is, will you resolve to be faithful to Christ you're not gonna be perfect. But you can be a little further along than you were last year. And you can be a little further along than you were five years ago. And that's the goal. That's the goal. Holiness is the pursuit. It's not the destination. Holiness is the road. It's not the landmark. So we saw this morning when those seeds are planted from our enemies, whether from without or within, be ready to give an answer, refute their falsehoods, respond faithfully, and resolve to follow Christ no matter what. Revelation 12 tells us that the church will always face two threats. The threat of persecution from without in the form of government, authorities, those kinds of things, and the persecution from within, false religion. And when those things come, will you be ready to give an answer? Are you equipped to give an answer? How can we equip ourselves? Just real quick, number one, make sure we are fleeing from hypocrisy. Make sure we're fleeing from hypocrisy. Uh, Jesus said, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Be genuine in our faith. Beloved, civic religion is not gonna get us anywhere. We need to have genuine biblical faith. Number two, Expect to face hardship. Don't be surprised by it. 
Paul says, whoever wants to live a godly life will suffer, just like Christ did. And number three, cultivate genuine fellowship. Not just civility. Cultivate genuine fellowship, genuine friendship. Ecclesiastes 4.12 says, you can attack one man, but two is better, but a three-strung three cord is hard to cut. Cultivate genuine fellowship. Cultivate genuine accountability. Resolve to follow Christ. Respond faithfully and refute the falsehoods when Satan plants those little seeds of doubt in your mind. Our Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your love and for these truths. Lord, I'm so thankful for each and every person who's here this morning. And I pray that you will give them enablement, resolve to follow you no matter what. Lord, that we will make a firm stake in our hearts just as, just as Luther did so many years ago. Here I stand, I can do no other. God help me. Lord, I pray this morning to help us to stand here upon the rock of your word, upon the truth of, of your creation, of who you are. And Lord, that we will not be moved by the little seeds of falsehood that Satan plants both within our hearts, by our flesh, and how he also attacks us externally. Father, here we stand. May we preach the word, not giving in to myths, not giving in to whatever the tickling ears of men want to listen to nowadays, but to the word of God. May we stand here. Sola Scriptura. To the glory of God alone. Let's stand together. I'm gonna to ask our musicians just to play. I know I've ran a little long this morning. I apologize for that, but... Just for just one moment, I want you to just bow your heads and just kind of reflect on what has been said. And if there's any of you who want prayer, you want specific guidance for how to do some of the things we've talked about, we can pray for those things. Maybe you're here today, you wanna to give your life to Christ and you wanna know how you can have this kind of assurance. Maybe you've received the word and yet you wanna confess the word in baptism. You wanna confess Christ in baptism or you wanna be part of a faithful fellowship. Whatever your need is, we invite you to come just for a few minutes.